Are y'all this lively outside of church? Okay, all right, good, just making sure. If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. This will be uh, the uh, final portion about John the Baptist and Christ's comments after uh, John the Baptist messengers come, and then we will have a couple of messages on the sinful woman forgive, forgiven right around uh, Valentine's Day. I love the way how the Lord worked that out. So um, hope that hope that this is being beneficial to you as much as it is to me uh, in studying and preparing uh, these messages. Um, it's just uh, sometimes I have to pinch myself. I just can't believe that that I actually have the the job of reading God's word and preparing teachings and preachings for the church. It's just sometimes I just, I just really can't believe it. You, you probably can't either. Amen? Amen. Uh, the past few Sundays, we've been in Luke chapter 7, verses 18-35, and the reason uh, we take all these verses together uh, is because they clearly go together when you look at the blocks of text and could not be interpreted properly without building the theology around them, much like the Sermon in the Plain in Luke chapter 6. So if you really want to understand what God is saying uh, through his word, uh, doing it without a proper context, you, you just, you can't. It's impossible to do that. Now you can take one verse out and kind of say, well, I think this is what this means to me, but you're not getting to God's intended meeting unless you just happen upon his intended meeting. And that does happen, but most of the time we don't. Most of the time we come to a meaning that is not meant by God uh, when we take his word out of context. So when we transition to chapter 7 from 6 from the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus engages the people of the community again with healings. And chapter 7 primarily, as those of you that have been regular here the past few weeks or followed online, is built around two miracles, two primary miracles. One of those is the healing of the centurion servant focused on the faith of the centurion. And then the second was the raising of the widow of Nain's son, and that's focused on Christ's care for the widow and, and showing his power over death. So Luke presents these two miracles along with all the other testimony about Christ from previous chapters as the foundation for the reason that John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus with this question that troubles everybody so much. Okay? And the question is, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And about the time John's messengers get to Jesus, they, the Bible tells us that when they show up to ask him that question, Jesus is in full-fledged ministry, active in ministry. His apostles are helping him, and there's people being healed, and all kind of cool stuff going on that we've been reading all through the book of Luke so far. And Jesus tells John's messengers, he says... Go tell John what you have seen and heard. What have you seen? What have you heard? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to him. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus basically tells John to trust. Trust the Old Testament Word of God, to trust it. The Word teaches in Isaiah and other places that the Messiah, when he comes, will do certain things. The breaking in of God's kingdom onto earth, you will see certain things happen, the Bible teaches, and those things are being done. 
Scripture is being fulfilled, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me or what I am doing, he says. Blessed is the one who believes John and who believes me as Christ the Messiah and follows me. Blessed is he. So when John's messengers leave, there's a transition. So they leave, and then Jesus then turns to the crowd. This is what we looked at last week. He turns to the crowd, and he gives his own endorsement and support of John's ministry. Uh, the way I like to think about this is, is that basically Jesus, Jesus took up for him. Uh, you ever had somebody take up for you? I just love that. If you've ever had somebody take up for you, it's a great feeling. You know, to have somebody have, have, a, have mistaken or, or a misperception about who you are and your character of what you've done, and then somebody steps up and says, hold, hold on just a minute. That's not, that's not what this guy really is. Well, Jesus does that, and he gives this, this testimony of John's ministry just in case someone got the wrong idea about the purpose of John's visit to Jesus. I mean, after all, John had spent the majority of his life pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin of the world. I mean, did he now doubt that? I mean, why would he send his disciples to ask that question? So Jesus cuts that doubt off right there by testifying for John the Baptist. To take away any questions about John's identity, Jesus testifies about him just like, believe it or not, he will testify about you to the Father when you die and pass from this place and go to heaven. Jesus will testify for you that you are his child. Can I get an amen on that? Beautiful, yes, wonderful. So three times Jesus asked the question, what did you go to the desert to see talking about John the Baptist, trying to stir their hearts and reposition their minds about this great man of God, this wild man living out in the desert, preaching hellfire brimstone, paving the way, making the way just and open for Jesus as Messiah to come? He said, what did you go to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The obvious answer to that is what? No. You did not go out there to see that. There's nothing special about the local vegetation growing in the Jordan, nor was John a reed shaken by the wind, meaning that John was a fickle, weak, fearful man. In fact, John was just the opposite. John was strong. John was a rock when it came to truth and principle, and he put his life on the line for the truth. Next he says, what did you go out to the desert to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? I mean, we know what John the Baptist wore, amen? It, we, we, nobody went out there to see a man in soft clothing. We know that John the Baptist wore a, a garment of camel hair. And he wore a big brown leather belt. He was reminiscent of Elijah from the Old Testament. And he ate locusts and wild honey. That's hardly a king's attire nor his diet. No one would describe John as soft or living in king's courts. He did presently reside, however, in the king's dungeon for condemning Herod's adulterous relationship. No, John was not a man dressed in soft clothing, and you didn't have to go to the wilderness to see that. And he says, what about a prophet? What did you go to the desert to see? A prophet, yes. That's what you went to see. And more than a prophet, because the Bible prophesied his coming as a prophet, 
in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse 28, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now the pump is primed for the final passages today about this incredible exchange and Jesus gives this parable. Verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? This is Jesus talking. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? That's a great question, isn't it? That's a great question. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That is the ones who follow wisdom the ones who listen to wisdom, the ones who listen to God. Those are the children. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. So first, let's look at verse 29. We, we touched on this last week, but I want to I bring it up again because this, this parenthetical uh, insertion by Luke here helps to pave the way for what Jesus says to help us get a little bit more insight into what's going on here. The division that Christ always brings. We don't like to think about Jesus bringing division. I don't like thinking about that. I have never liked thinking about that. But ever since there have been certain passages in the scripture that I have read, I know for a fact that collateral damage from God's kingdom, when you preach the gospel, when you teach the truth of the Bible, you are going to have people that accept it and receive it, and you're going to have people that reject it and rebel against it, and sometimes outright fight to try to destroy it and keep it from going forward. It is a reality of the kingdom of God. You can't, you can't smooth that over with pleasantries. It's, it's, it's a fact. It is reality. It happens. And you see it right here in the word of God. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So as Jesus finishes testifying about John... The teaching, Christ's teaching, settles into the hearts and minds of those listening. And God's Word does what God's Word is designed to do. Adrian Rogers used to always say something that I loved. You've heard me say it before. Can anybody remember what I said? God's Word will cut you to kill you? Or God's word will cut you to what? Heal you. Remember that, Adrian Rogers. God's word, when it is preached, one way or another, it's going to cut if you hear it. And it's going to cut 
and kill you or it's going to cut and heal you. And you see that right here. To some people, God's word cut. They received, got baptism and believed. Other people heard it, they got cut and they hardened and rejected the teaching. So God's word does what it is designed to do and it is designed to cut. And when you cut something, what does it do? It exposes what is underneath, correct? How many hunters we got in here ever cleaned an animal before? I can remember the first time I ever saw a deer cleaned. I almost threw up at the deer camp. It was, I mean, it was the, I've never, I mean, I went to, I mean, I had biology books and all that kind of stuff, but to actually stand there and to see a deer cleaned in real time standing five feet from it, I had never seen anything like that before. And when that cut happened, I know some of y'all don't like hunting. I'm sorry, the illustration just came. We're going to say this is of God, amen? The cut came, and I saw in there, and it exposed everything inside that animal, and it absolutely freaked me out and almost made me throw up. Why? Because I got to see the intricacy of, of all the inner parts of that deer. And as we well know, the larger and more complex the animal is, the closer that animal's inside are to human insides and so it just gives you the creeps to see it well that is what God's word does to us spiritually my friends when God's word is preached it is like a two-edged sword that cuts you straight down the middle and exposes your beliefs it exposes who you are and that is why many people will not sit under convictional gospel preaching they want to hide they don't want the light shown on them. They want to remain in darkness. They want to run from it. But the fact of the matter is, is that you open this Bible and you preach it and you study it. It is going to cut you. It is going to cut you deep. And you have a choice. You can either believe and submit to it or you can reject it and rebel against it. Period. There is no middle ground. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yes, every time John the Baptist went to the countryside and preached... It was like the word of God. It was like a sharp two-edged sword cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and exposing and exposing and exposing. And if it cut and exposed and you submitted and believed, you got baptized and followed John. If you didn't, you rebelled and tried to turn everybody else away from him, tried to steer everybody else away from him. As you will know in just a few minutes, they would accuse John the Baptist of being demon-possessed. That's how much they were against him. They accused him of being demon-possessed. So it exposed. So we're given two groups in the crowd. And along with those two groups, we have two opposite reactions. All the people, including the tax collectors, they heard and praised God and declared him just. Now that's put there on purpose. All the people and including the tax collectors. So what this is saying, all the normal, everyday people, 
the farmers, the, the marketers, the, the day laborers, the, the, the tax collectors, even to the fringe of, of, the, of the, the most in the gutter sinners considered that day tax collectors, they came out to the wilderness and they heard John's message and they believed it. How do we know that? Because they declared God just. That meant they went out there and they heard it and they, in their hearts and in their minds, they said, this is, this is right. This is right. This man is of God. He is preaching God's word. We need to submit to this. We need to get baptized by him. We need to prepare our hearts for the coming Messiah, for the one that is coming, where he must decrease and Jesus must increase. We need to be baptized by him. But there's another group. The Pharisees and the lawyers. And this is the part that I kind of harped on last week that is probably one of the most discouraging things about being a preacher and being a, a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, theologically speaking, is that what you find is that most of the time, the people that have supposedly been walking with God the longest, that supposedly know the word of God, that have been studying and know the word of God for decades and decades and decades, they are the ones that for some reason, when true spirituality comes, when true preaching comes, they reject it by and large. I don't understand that. I mean, I, I, mean, I do in the context of the fact that, that it's what God's word says, but it, but, it, but it blows my mind when I come across somebody, when the word of God specifically says X, Y, Z, and then that old seasoned saint that's twice my age almost, probably knows the Bible better than I do, stares me right in the eye and I say, well, that's not what that means. That's not what that means. And that's not what we're about here. And I'm like, so we're not about the word of God in a Southern Baptist church? Really? So what are we about? Well, that's what's going on here. The Pharisees and the lawyers reject it. So the ministry of John and Jesus have done what it is designed to do. It has exposed what is on the inside. And the fact that these Pharisees and lawyers have rejected John's baptism means they will reject Christ's and therefore prove themselves to not be of God. So in this moment, in this moment, Christ is presented an opportunity to explain what is going on. And I'm glad he did this because I, I think it needs to be explained. Just like Paul went overboard in Romans to try to explain why by and large the Jews rejected Jesus, by and large. Jesus goes into this parable to try to explain the heart of what is going on here. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the fl flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So I want you to get this. Now, it took me a while to figure this out. What's happening is, and I'll, I'll go back over this in the notes if you miss this little tear I'm about to go on, okay? You've got these kids on one side, these kids on the other. And one side of these kids are going, we sang the flute for you, and you didn't dance. 
Then this side of the children go, well, we sang a dirge for you and you didn't cry. And so back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, arguing back and forth like children. So Jesus exposes their hearts even more. Now, when I hear that first question, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? I mean, that's something like you'd hear at the barbershop, amen? Right? I mean, think about that, guys. You've gone to the barbershop and had all the old men standing around. What's the first thing they say? Boy, I tell you what, this younger generation, what are they doing? They're taking us to... Oh, come on. Taking us to hell in a... Exactly. That sounds exactly like what that says. They are taking us to hell in the handbasket. Now, we always pick on the women and the gossip at the beauty shop, right, guys? But guys talk at the barbershop. We talk at the barbershop, and that's the kind of stuff that we say. We talk about this new generation and everything that's wrong with it. Last night, one of the funniest things happened to me that has happened to me in a long time with Chloe. I, Angie doesn't even know about this, hadn't told her, so she's like freaking out right now. But anyway, Chloe has been on this light bulb spree here lately. I'm going to explain that. She comes to me on a regular basis reporting to me all of the light bulbs that are going out in the house. And I mean, it's serious to her. She comes to me and she says, Dad, there's a light bulb out in the den. Okay, honey. Okay, Daddy will take care of it in a minute. Okay, Dad, but that means another light bulb is probably going to go out in the den. I was like, okay, honey, I'll take care of it. Well, last night, and, and y'all don't know this, so I'll go ahead and tell you, Saturday nights from about somewhere around 6 o'clock, um, we, I try to have everybody kind of settle down. doesn't always work out that way. try to have everybody settle down. And, and around between, we eat supper together. And then right around 7 or 8, I try to get really quiet, pull my sermon out, pull my computer out. And I try to read it 10 or 15 times and make sure that, that, you know, that there's nothing that the Lord maybe prompts in my heart to put back in there. But, you know, Bish, I know a lot of you don't like me looking at my notes all the time. It's been a criticism my whole life. So I try to have enough of it in me that I don't have to look at my notes all the time. So I'm sitting there working on, on right in here, kind of finessing this little passage right here a little bit. Chloe comes come running up. Dad, the light bulbs in the laundry room are going out. There's only two, two, there's only one light bulb that's working. Two light bulbs are out. And I looked at her and I went, man, Chloe, you know, I, I mean, I just replaced those lifetime LED light bulbs. It hadn't been a year ago. And she went, God is my witness. She rolled her eyes back in her head and she said, light bulbs these days. <laughs> like this generation of light bulbs just ain't cutting it. You know what I mean? I mean, I was like, I've got to share that with the congregation. That is absolutely hilarious that she would come up to me and say that these light, the light bulbs these days, you know, and then she just walked off. And it was, I guess I just needed that laugh. I guess God wanted you to have that today. Maybe the message was going to stink because that's going to be the only thing you remember out of this sermon today, you know what I mean? So anyway, where was I? So the difference here, though, is that the Son of God is the one asking the question. And so based on the rejection of John's baptism, he says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? And he says, they are like children. 
Now, Jesus, as you well know, one of my favorite, some of the favorite parts of Scripture is when he says, unless you are like what? Little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Okay, he's not using this in a positive sense. He's using this in a negative sense. And I can tell you by experience that there is one thing that full-grown men do not like to be called. And what is that? Yeah, yeah. You ever been told you're acting like a child by your wife before? Boy, that stings, doesn't it? I mean, none of us like to be called a child, especially men that are trained, experienced professionals. They don't like to be called children because for an adult male to be called a child implies that they are immature, small, and underdeveloped, just, just to name a few of the offensive things about that. Men don't like to be called boys. The fact of the matter is, many men do behave like boys, but they don't like to be called boys. And here Jesus is saying, this generation is like children. And here's the next part that caught my eye. They are like children sitting in the marketplace. Children sitting in the marketplace. Now let me ask you a question. Uh, how often, let me ask this first question. How often do you see children sitting anywhere? Unless they're in front of a screen, and that happens, especially in modern, modern society, uh, you know, we have video games and we have TVs and whatnot. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of normal for when that happens, but it, but it hadn't always been that way. I mean, children play non-stop. I have a seven-year-old little girl. I am 52, and I have a seven-year-old little girl. I just talked about her, the, the, the bulb inspector. Uh, I just talked about her. And, and that child... And when she's not in front of a screen watching a movie or doing something like that, she is all over the place. Running through the house, singing. She's got this little flute she plays all the time. I've heard Mary had a little lamb 40,000 times. She, she missed those last couple of notes, but she's got them now. She got them now. And she does them all the time. I mean, playing dress up, going outside, playing in the dirt, asking me and Angie a thousand questions, for, uh, forcing her siblings to play with her. So it's interesting to me, that Christ says this generation is like children sitting, and not just sitting, but sitting in the marketplace. So how many times, now not just sitting, but how many times have you seen children sitting in the marketplace? Now KB's not around anymore. Y'all remember KB Hobby Store, KB Toy Store, Toys R Us? You ever seen a child sitting in one of those? They don't sit. They, they, they run, they run crazy. I mean, unless they're eating, I mean, they're not, they're not sitting. Let me ask you this question. Did any of y'all have a child that was a sudden runner, if you know what I'm talking about? That was just a sudden runner? We had one of those, and I'm going to let you try to guess who it was. Who do you think the sudden runner was? No, I knew you'd say Micah. It was not Micah. It was Mary Lauren. Now, now she, she, I mean, most of the time, pretty compliant, most of the time. But when you really needed her to like be close because you're at a marketplace or a big strange place that you're not really familiar with and you don't know everybody at, I mean, when you least expected it, all of a sudden, pew, I mean, she would take off and go running and kind of laugh at you while she's running. You know, like, try to come catch me. Now, we've got, we've got at that time, we had three kids. Chloe wasn't born yet. So, I mean, we've got three children. So, I mean, if one of the other spouses isn't there, you're in trouble. 
Because then you've got to leave those two or drag them with you chasing her. So it just did not work well at all. But she was this, this, this sudden runner, Mary was. So most of the time when you go out to the marketplace, our children never sat down. Now, we were the ones trying to sit down at every bench, amen? We wanted to sit down all the time. They were nonstop dragging us here, dragging us there. Daddy, look at this. Mama, can I have that? Wow, check this out. So I'm just trying to build, try, try, trying to give you some things to connect to as we move on through this. This is what I had to do in my own mind. So in this parable, Christ says the unbelieving Pharisees and lawyers or scribes are like children sitting in the marketplace. That tells you something's wrong here. Children don't sit in the marketplace. They're up moving around and running around and playing and having a good time. Because, I mean, when do parents get worried the most? When things get what? Yeah. Something's wrong if I can't hear them running around and stomping and tearing into stuff, right? So, so something, something is, is wrong when you don't hear them running and screaming and playing. Now, in Jesus' parable, they're not being quiet, but they are gathered together sitting in groups, and they're contending back and forth with each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. Well, we sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. So let's open that up a little bit. So playing the flute and you didn't dance. So the implication that Jesus is saying is that the flute was played which should have inspired joyous dance and happiness. Like what you would see at a wedding or some other joyous occasion. Flute playing has a tendency to lift your spirits, would you say? When you hear a flute play, I love, you know, hear the flutes. When we go out to war playing the flute. I mean, I also had this thought. Who remembers the guy named Zamfir? Anybody remember him? Remember who Zamfir was? He had that, um, I don't know what you call that thing. But he, I can remember as a kid growing up 20 years ago, or I wasn't a kid 20 years ago, but you know, when I was a teen, they were trying to sell his record uh, on, on, on the 800 number. And I mean, he was just incredible. I mean, I just sit there and just listen to him because it was just so in, inspiring to listen to him play. So he's saying, you know, we, we, we did that, we, we did this, but you didn't dance. I mean, what, what's going on with that? I mean, it's hard to imagine someone not dancing with some flute playing at something like a wedding. To be unmoved by that is just strange. Hear Zamfir play and not be impressed and not be moved by that. To hear a flute play and not be moved by that, Jesus says. Then we sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now, I, I didn't know what a dirge was. I hate to admit, I, I had no idea what a dirge was. I had to look it up. And a dirge is this either a sad song or a lament. It can be a song with, with a sad emotion to it or it can be a poem that, that provokes sadness, uh, anything like that. So, so it's, it's like something that would be sang at a funeral. And, and that made me think about something that like really impacted me years ago. I remember in 1992, a song came out by one of my favorite musicians. And it wasn't Eddie Van Halen before you start thinking that. This was Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton went through a, a, a tragedy around 1991, 1992. He had, I believe, a, a four-year-old son, Connor, 
was visiting a friend in New York City and he, the, the, the friend had left a window open in their apartment and the young boy, Connor, fell 50 floors to his death. And that same year, Eric Clapton wrote the song, you know what it was? Tears in Heaven, yeah, Tears in Heaven. I can remember when the song came out, and it was, it was top 40, and I played it all the time, and when the song came on, and you knew the backstory, you couldn't help but feel like you knew Eric Clapton, and felt like you could, you could be with him in his pain, and understand the tragedy of losing his son, especially in that fashion. And Jesus says, you're like these children who are, are trying to play this flute and not getting a response and trying to do this, this dirge and not getting a response. So, so neither of these groups of children responded to the extremes of the music and the proper response to the flute music is to dance and the proper response to the dirge is to be sad and grieve. I mean, it's like, and I think this is what Jesus was getting at. It's like the children are what? unappeasable you can't please them you've sang this beautiful flute song they didn't want that they sang this sad dirge they didn't want that and they're still they're still arguing and fighting so Jesus says that we can take this generational example of children sitting in the marketplace and apply it to the response of the Pharisees and lawyers uh, and, and, and mine and my and John's ministries so verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Whoever responds to either John or to Jesus, that's wisdom. And we see that happening, but you have not. Nothing pleases you. The flute song doesn't please you. The dirge song doesn't please you. Please you. You didn't like John's ministry. You don't like my ministry. Is it possible that you're really not seeking God at all? Is it possible? So John the Baptist's lifestyle... He's the dirge, most likely. His lifestyle was unacceptable. And I want you, I want you to really pay close attention because this is the, to use a, a, a contemporary secular term, this is kind of the punchline of what Jesus is trying to say here. John the Baptist was of priestly descent. Remember that? Priestly descent. Zechariah and Elizabeth both. You could not have had a better pedigree as far as Jews were concerned than what John had, okay? He had priestly descent. His birth was miraculous in the sense that Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old when they had him. And in the Bible, those types of births were seen as God's favor on the, hus on the husband and wife. So that's really good. John lived outside Jerusalem in the wilderness. Many believed he had taken a Nazarite vow, evidenced of the deep commitment to the Lord, John also resembled Elijah in his mannerism and dress, and John preached judgment and repentance. So Jesus is saying, this was John the Baptist. 
And John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, living sacrificially like he did, much like Elijah, and you said, he's demon-possessed. Jesus, the flute, I would say most likely, Jesus says he's unacceptable to them. Jesus' birth was controversial He claimed to be born of the Holy Spirit of God. His parents were not of priestly descent. They were an obscure family from an obscure town, Nazareth, virtually unknown. Jesus was raised by a carpenter, traveled to the rural communities, and came to Jerusalem for the feasts as an observant Jew. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you what, there is a fantastic modern-day application to this. If you don't already see where this is headed, you're blind. (laughs) What it's basically saying is that no preaching, you will hear no preaching from God. You will hear no truth from God because it doesn't tickle your fancy. And if it doesn't tickle your fancy, you're not going to hear it, and you're going to argue with those who bring it. That's what he's saying. John came, lived out in the desert, lived off locusts and wild honey, lived pure, was of a priestly descent. You said he was a demon. I came in, truly the son of God, lived among you, healing you, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and you want nothing to do with me. You don't want God, period. So this parable of contrast says there is no way to please you. This generation is like bickering, arguing children that can't be pleased with anything, much less each other. They played the flute, no one no one cried, no response, no matter the method used. John and Jesus' ministries are very similar. Wow. So what happened? Why were they so resistant to the truth? Why did they not want to hear it? There's where Colton's scripture comes in today from Hebrews. Unbelieving, hardened heart. Unbelieving, hardened heart. John nor Jesus did not fit their program. Didn't fit their program. Not what they wanted, not what they expected. It's what God's word promised, so they should have known, but they didn't. I mean, who, who, who can hear Zamphir's The Magic? And if you have not listened to him lately, I highly encourage you, go home. His videos are out there. I almost wasted an hour listening to him play last night at 10 o'clock. His flute playing is magical, and they pan the audience, and tears, there's not a word being said, there's no lyrics, it's just Zamfir passionately running his lips over those pipes and playing that flute, and people crying all over the place, deeply moved, deeply moved. Who can listen to Eric Clapton's song, Tears from Heaven, and know the backstory, and not be moved by that occurrence in that song. And this is the 
where I go deep into this, and I may be wrong, but Jesus is basically saying, nothing moves you spiritually. Nothing moves you. You're not moved. Nothing can break through that hard heart. Your mind is made up. You know who God is and how he works. And it does not matter how many people come to you from whatever context they come to with the scripture to preach to you. You are not open to hearing it and believing it and changing. If this can't move you, nothing will. You're unreachable. You're unappeasable. No way to please you. That's a good place to pray. Let's pray. Father, I I have been moved. I just, I don't want to be one of these children in the marketplace. That's my fear. Because it is such a temptation, such a temptation to be that unappeasable child, that unappeasable grown-up child that will not listen. That looks at John's ministry and says, man, this guy's insane. This guy is demon-possessed. How can anybody listen to him? This cannot be God. Nor do I want to be the man that looks at Jesus Christ and says, man, this guy, this guy can't be of God. And he's just like us. I mean, in fact, he's worse than us. He, he, he hangs out with wretched, horrid sinners, horrible people. He eats and he drinks. He's a glutton. But, oh, Lord, he's God. And he's none of those things. He's holy and pure. He is your son. He is the one that came to rescue us from our sins. As we saw with, with our precious sister Anne this morning, he rescued her. He rescued me. He rescued my wife. He's rescued so many that I've known. Father, let us have hearts that are open to listen, to be humble, to hear John the Baptist cries in the wilderness. And to understand that his job was to rip off the scab and prepare us to soften our hearts and prepare us the way for the Son of God that would come, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. To bring, to heighten our awareness of the pending judgment, the coming judgment and the fire and the winnowing fork and that we do not want to be chaff. We want to be saved. We want to accept Christ and love him and follow him and share his love with others. Lord, help us listen to the dirge and help us weep and help us listen to the flute and help us dance. We want to be in the center of your will. And that is our prayer as we close, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.